You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Naming and shaming seems to work, at least against China's Ministry of State Security. Iranian cyber espionage continues its regional focus. Wi-Fi chip flaws could expose encrypted traffic to snoopers. Someone, maybe from abroad, is pretending to be the U.S. Democratic National Committee. Tips on backing up files, ransomware gangs up their game, and that unmarked small box on your car? Yeah, you can, you can totally take that off. From the 2020 RSA Conference in San Francisco, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, February 27th, 2020. Those wondering if the U.S. policy of naming and shaming threat actors can disrupt those adversaries may find some evidence that it does by considering how the Chinese organizations named in the Equifax breach indictment seem to have vanished from cyberspace. It appears that Chinese services, at least, are sensitive to this kind of treatment. CrowdStrike founder Dmitry Alperovich said yesterday at RSAC 2020 that it appeared China's Ministry of State Security has had to reset and retool. Comment Panda, Stone Panda, and Gothic Panda have all gone quiet. Whether this amounts to more than a restructuring or a reorganization remains to be seen, but as anyone who's been through a government agency reorganization can attest, even that's disruptive enough. Alperovich said that the Chinese seem unusual in this respect. The Russians, the Iranians, and the North Koreans, to consider the three other familiar adversaries, tend to shrug off American indictments and move on. CyberScoop and SC Magazine report that Dell SecureWorks has concluded that Iranian cyber operations have maintained their customary steady tempo since Quds Force Commander Major General Soleimani died in a U.S. drone strike. There may have been some retaliatory surge... But for the most part, the activity looks like business as usual. Researchers attribute the ongoing regional cyber espionage to the Iranian threat group Cobalt Ulster, also known as Muddy Water, Seedworm, Temp.Zagros, and Static Kitten. The governments most affected have been those of Turkey, Jordan, and Iraq, with organizations in Georgia and Azerbaijan also appearing on the target list. The typical attack method has been spear phishing. Liesel Franz serves in the office of the secretary, in the office of the coordinator for cyber issues at the U.S. Department of State. She stopped by our booth here at RSAC to share her inside perspectives on the global world of cyber diplomacy. Our office was created about nine years ago to make uh, reflect the international nature of cyberspace, the need for dealing with cyber policy as a foreign policy issue be able to build relationships and coalitions with other countries to deal with you know, the global issues and the global problems that we've seen. 
So what, what is the day-to-day -day like? What sorts of things, are the interactions that your, you and your team are, are taking part in? Well, we cover sort of what the cyber policy can cover a lot. One of in, that we focus on is international security. Um, that's sort of the bread and butter for the State Department to deal in multilateral venues. We also work within the interagency with other departments and agencies on um, bolstering what we call cyber due diligence, which is more along the lines of cybersecurity as we see it here at RSA. Mm -hmm. We work with others on the messaging and, and promoting um, efforts to combat cybercrime. Uh, we talk about sort of global governance of the internet. We talk about internet freedom. Those kinds of issues that sort of run the gamut. And we work a lot within the department with the other offices that deal parochially with those issues and the interagency. And we take that abroad. So what does that mean? We work sort of in um, what I would call three concentric circles of venues. One is our bilateral relationships with country to country or our work in regional organizations or regional sub-regions around the world. But that would include things like the security, um, regional security organizations like the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe or the Organization of American States or the ASEAN Regional Forum, things like that. And then take it even further out into the big multilateral organizations like the United Nations. My sense is that many nations have been uh, reticent to draw sharp lines in the sand when it comes to behavior in cyberspace. It's, um, first of all, do you, do you think that perception is accurate and, and do you have any insights on that? Um, I, think it's, I think it's accurate um, to say that it's um, hard to draw yeah. right lines a lot of the time and so maybe that's what the reticence is. You know, as, you know, I mentioned we've been working on these things for decades, but it's really only a couple, three decades, right? It's not 50 years or 100 years. And right. so things are fairly new. And it's kind of hard even to draw a bright line around things like definitions. Mm -hmm. um, so one person's application um, is another person's cyber weapon, mm -hmm. quote unquote. Sure. I don't like to use that term, yeah. but that's what I mean. We can't even sort of draw clear lines around that. Or what is one person's security is another person's content control. So how to even draw a line is sometimes hard. So maybe that's what you're sensing. The sense that I've had is that it's, it, for, it could be that nation states are reticent to draw lines in the sand because their own intelligence organizations may be taking advantage of some of that ambiguity themselves. So it's, it's in their best interest to not be too specific about certain things because if we let this ambiguity stay out there for a certain amount of time, that may be in our own interest. I think there's a point to that, yeah. which is why we as diplomats yeah. <laughs> spend a lot of time negotiating text. And the kinds of things that we out, like the outlines of this framework for responsible state behavior that I mentioned is a way to put what I think are clear expectations mm -hmm. of state behavior, but allow for the innovation and communication and you know, technologies, which frankly are not only held by states, right, yeah. to, to, uh, to develop, to move. And, you know, if there's some ambiguity for countries, maybe that's, maybe that's reflected in some of that. But uh, the bottom line is to be able to articulate what is acceptable and what isn't. Yeah. 
What would you like um, people to know? I'm, I'm thinking specifically folks who are cybersecurity professionals about the work that hmm. your department does, the Department of State. Are, are there any uh, things you feel aren't getting the attention they deserve? It's notable to me, just as anecdotally, that, you know, I've been coming to the RSA conference since 2006, and I've been in and out in government, so I've represented both industry and government here, but always in the policy space. And it used to be that the policy track at the RSA conference were have a few smattering of people in the room. Mm. The panel I just came from, we were, we were full. Oh, and so I think that the that there is a greater understanding of what exactly governments do in this space and, and how we work together. And that there is a, I mean, I think probably some people might have been surprised that our office is only nine years old. That doesn't mean cyber diplomacy wasn't happening before that, but that was when it was sort of coalesced into more regularized processes. Yeah, yeah. yeah a recognition of, the, yeah. of its status and, ne- and yeah. necessity, I suppose. And since in the last nine years, other countries um, have developed... Uh, roles or offices similar to ours in their foreign ministries. Many manner of countries yeah. have done that. Russia, China, Estonia, Germany, you, know, you name it, and Netherlands. Right. And some of them are here. What I would like people to come away with maybe is the idea that we need to keep talking about the nexus between network security and international security. That there yeah. is a nexus there and we're working it. That's Liesl France from the U.S. Department of State. ESET researchers report finding encryption flaws in Cypress Semiconductor and Broadcom Wi-Fi chips. While the risk is relatively limited, it remains possible that attackers could intercept data transmitted wirelessly. They call the bug Crook, and it's been assigned the identifier CVE-2019-15126. ESET says Crook can cause vulnerable devices to use an all-zero encryption key to encrypt part of the user's communication. In a successful attack, this vulnerability allows an adversary to decrypt some wireless network packets transmitted by a vulnerable device. According to the Washington Post, persons, possibly foreigners, impersonating the Democratic National Committee have sought to establish contact with presidential campaigns. The impersonation was initially reported to the DNC by Senator Sanders' campaign. The National Party would like all campaigns to regard contacts purporting to be from the DNC with appropriate skepticism. The UK's National Cybersecurity Centre wishes to remind everyone, and everyone includes you and me, my friends, that ransomware can also affect online backups. Too many enterprises have thought they were good to go, only to find out that, well, their backup files conveniently connected to their network were also encrypted. We've had occasion to observe that a ransomware attack should now be regarded as also a data breach, The hoods are threatening to release their victims' sensitive files to give them additional leverage in extracting ransom. Bleeping Computer says the gang behind Sodino Kibi, which, you'll recall, operates as an affiliate marketing scheme, is telling its criminal clients not only to exfiltrate data before they encrypt it, but also to threaten the victims that they'll tell the stock markets the victims have lousy security. It hasn't occurred to the hoods that they could equally well just short the stock and then work their reputational damage. It's a good thing that only nice people listen to this podcast, right? And here's some news you can use from the state of Indiana. We've sometimes been moved to ask, suppose you found a GPS tracker on your car. Could you just unplug it and take it away? We're asking for a friend, you understand. 
Well, anywho, this case came up in the Hoosier State where some guy the police were tracking, legally, we hasten to add, the guy, one Derek Huring, was suspected of dealing methamphetamine. Well, he suddenly drops off the grid. One minute, you're tracking his Ford Expedition. The next, blammo, he's gone, baby gone. So anyway, they figure out that he'd found the GPS tracker, probably wondered what it was, unplugged that bugger, tossed it into the back seat, and went about his business. So John Law, being pretty sore at this guy, decides to ask for a search warrant for Mr. Hearing's house and his dad's barn because the loss of signal counts as probable cause for concluding that Mr. Hearing stole the GPS tracker, right? And so they got their warrant. But on Mr. Hearing's appeal, the Supreme Court of Indiana says no, that's unreasonable, and so all the drug contraband and the handgun they found during the search is out as fruit of the poisoned tree. I mean, come on, it's an unmarked box stuck to the guy's SUV without so much as a logo or a serial number, so how could taking it off count as stealing? The tracker didn't even have a sticker on it that said something like property of Warwick County Sheriff do not remove under penalty of law. You know, like those tags on my mattress that I've always been afraid to mess with. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is David DeFore. He's the VP of Engineering for Cybersecurity at WebRoot. David, here we are, RSA 2020, you yep. and I together. 
What do you think? What uh, you've been walking around the the showroom a been, little, or the, yes. the the floor a little bit, taking things in. Uh, what's your take so far? Where do we stand this year? Um, well, last year we had solved cybersecurity. I don't think you uh, <laughs> you may right. not remember that. That's right. Um, that was right. So uh, so why even have the show this year? Well, I had questioned why we would have the show this year, but I've I've realized I think this year it's to help um, the, the employment problem we have with cybersecurity professionals. Mm -hmm. um, we have so many of them out there trained who can't seem to find jobs. That is true. That um, we've this year it seems like we've come up with a bunch of product ideas that are going to require companies to hire dozens and dozens of more people. Because the products don't do anything but detect, analyze, and alert you. Uh, apparently, we've decided to stop protecting uh -huh. as an industry. Yeah, it's I very see. interesting. Huh. So what someone needs is a product that takes all of those other products and then feeds their, their output into that product. And does something. And does something. <laughs> exactly. What would you propose that it does? Uh, well, maybe it would block a threat uh -huh. or... You know, if it's identified a threat um, and it can remove it, maybe we could remove that threat. But it, honestly, in all seriousness, there is a lot of analyzing going on, a yeah. lot of detecting. And I know from an enterprise perspective, and, and a lot of folks here really are looking at enterprise and government, that's what they want because they want to be able to chase that trail. Right. But it seems like everybody's forgotten that there are smaller organizations who can't afford to have an army of people Sitting there monitoring, looking, seeing what's going on, I'm going to call us all out because I'm an engineer in this industry. It's a little bit easier to detect something than it is to remediate it or block it because you have to, you know, look for false positives and things like that. So are we getting a little bit lazy because we're just detecting and analyzing? Lots hmm. of analyzing going on, David. Lots of alerting. Hmm. Um, and then we're dumping it off to humans to figure it out. Do you think that, that it might just be that that is this year's shiny object? You know, every year at RSA, some things bubble to the top. And a couple of years ago, it was artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, you know, is that just the... It, it the, could be. The, the, where we are it, as you things know, come around in cycles? But and it's funny because, I mean, what was it? Five, six, seven years ago, everything was... Um, sim the right. analyzing and, and maybe we're back to the analyzing because there's nothing really new and exciting and ai got us away from that for a while and i mean like i said last year ai fixed everything so yeah. so we were done <laughs> um but but i i think you could be right you could be onto something there and it, but but i feel like we're really focusing on governments and and large businesses and everything you read in the news anymore is about you know small local governments, small businesses, mm. medium-sized businesses, medical centers. We're not really addressing those markets. And I know it's harder. You know, you want your big 30x multiplier. You got to be locked into a government or enterprise. But as an industry, it seems like we should be able to do some things that help those those smaller institutions and, and, and go that extra step to actually help them, not just alert them. Is it, is it a, a missed opportunity? Is there a market opportunity there for somebody to go after those uh, people who aren't being uh, served? You know, I think, I think there is. But again, it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is uh, revenue, recurring revenue and making a profit, I'm not trying to be silly here. But if that's your goal, there's a lot of market opportunity. But I think a lot of companies, you know, I've been coming here seven, eight years now, they're really looking to get bought. And if you're looking to get bought, you need that new sexy thing that, that yeah. somebody's going to pay a large multiplier for. Yeah. So it depends on what you're really looking for. What do you hope to, um, to take away from a conference like this? As you walk around and you take things in, I mean, obviously you're here representing your company and so there's a, there's a sales and promotional component, but you want to learn things too. Yes. Um, as you walk around, what are the things you're hoping to pick up? What are the take-homes 
for you from a show of this scale? Uh, that's great. Like uh, the big thing um, usually is what's the vibe? What's the feel? Is there yeah. anything underlying tone? And to, to kind of end on a positive note, um, David, we talked about this last year. Um, there was a huge, I believe, in the last year or two understanding the user's aren't as dumb as the cybersecurity people want to make them out to be. Hmm. That if we can show them the right thing to do, if we can ask them to, to follow these procedures, most of them are going to do it. Now, is there, you know, is there Bob down the road that every time somebody sends them a link, he clicks on it? Right. Yes. No, <laughs> right. we got to deal with the Bobs of the world, <clears throat> yeah. right? Yeah. But, but in general, people want to do the right thing. And if we're very clear with, hey, we're trying to do this not to be difficult, but it really helps protect us as an organization, people are really signing up for that. And where am I going? This year, um, the the conference is about the human element, yeah, right? Yeah. And I'm making fun of the, 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 the product. I'm a vendor, so I like to make fun of our, you know, us as well. Yeah. Uh, the, that I'm making fun that the human element is they want you to hire a bunch of more cybersecurity people. Right. But, but to look at it the other way, I think there's really getting to be a more and more understanding that if we can work with the people using computers who are inside the organizations we're trying to protect, they, they actually are able to really help more. And, and we're, we're seeing that come through, which is kind of nice. Yeah. All right. Well, David DeFore, thanks for joining us. Great being here, David. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>